new with us uh, today. We are in the middle of the book of Acts. We're entering into Acts chapter 20. And, uh, and since Acts chapter 13, the, the chief instrument that God's been using throughout the book of Acts has been the Apostle Paul. From Acts chapter 13, that first missionary journey, the Apostle Paul has really grown to be an instrument that God has used to, to plant churches and grow disciples. And, and there's been a very fruitful ministry. And I have to tell you, early in my Christian life, I struggled with that. I really struggled with the Apostle Paul because I, and I didn't really understand why God would use someone like him. Why God would use the Apostle Paul in such a way in the book of Acts. And here's some of my reasons why. First, the whole persecution of Christians thing took me a while. I mean, you think about all the pain and all the suffering that, were, that came onto Christians' lives at the hand of the Apostle Paul. I mean, why, why would God choose to use such a man? If you could get past that, the persecution of Christians, Paul seemed to have this grisly attitude, didn't he? I mean, he, he didn't get along with Barnabas. Hey, Barnabas is known as the son of encouragement. He's probably the nicest guy in church. But there came a point to where Paul couldn't even get along with Barnabas and there was this huge disagreement and they separated ways, went opposite directions to serve the Lord. Paul's grisly nature also called, uh, brought him to calling the Galatian Christians foolish, to confronting the Apostle Peter in front of others. Man, the Apostle Paul just seemed to be one of those guys that if he wasn't in front, getting his own way, doing his own thing, he wasn't happy. And early in my Christian life, as I'm reading through Acts and learning about the Apostle Paul, I struggle. Like, why would God choose such a man like that to have such a fruitful ministry? And then as I went through seminary, I began to learn more about Paul. I began to learn more about him and witness what God grew in him and developed in him. I saw certain attributes that changed my perspective, attributes like Paul loved Jesus. The love that Paul had for Jesus was profound and powerful. Listen to how Paul describes it in Philippians. It says this, whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Like I don't care about anything other than Jesus. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He goes on, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so I may gain Christ. I mean, Paul had this profound love for Jesus. Paul also had a strong commitment to the institution of church. I mean, Paul would travel throughout the region in order that he might plant churches, establish churches, grow churches, encourage churches, Listen to what he said to the church in Ephesus. He says, For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord which exists among you and your love for all the saints, I, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. He continues, says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul's like, man, I just love it. I love church and what God does in it, and I pray for it often. 
He had a profound love for Jesus, a commitment to church, and lastly, he had a huge love for people. I mean, Paul just had this heart for the people of God. Look how he describes it in 1 Thessalonians. It says, we prove to be gentle, gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. I mean, Paul, his heart for the people of God. I was in seminary soon. The, the gruff exterior of Paul started to melt away and I began to see this, this gushy center that Paul had for the Lord, for his church, and for his people. And God used those things Use Paul as, a, as an instrument of glory in such a way that there was a fruitful nature to his ministry. And it led me to ask myself this question, what if there were more Apostle Pauls today? Like what would the world look like? Before, before I was like, oh, one Apostle Paul is enough. But what if there were more Apostle Pauls? What would the world look like? If more of us shared some of these attributes, what would the Chino Valley look like? If Christians shared some of the attributes of the ministry of Paul, and that's why I'm excited about this next passage in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 illustrates some attributes of Paul's ministry that I believe led to his fruitfulness. And maybe some attributes that we might wanna consider adding to our lives and our ministries in confidence that God could use that to further reach our homes, our community, and our world for the gospel of Christ. If you, can, if you have your Bibles, you can join me in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, and we're going to go into four attributes, four characteristics that we see about Paul's fruitful ministry in this passage, and four attributes, four characteristics that I'd love to see in our lives as well. It begins this way, Acts chapter 20, starting in verse one. It says, after the uproar had ceased, if you remember, let me give you the context. Remember, Acts chapter 19 was all about the ministry of God in Ephesus. And God did amazing and miraculous things in Ephesus in this dark and crazy culture that God did such a work and not only transformed that city, but the entire region of Asia so much that, that the economy of that region was threatened. This man named Demetrius, he was a silversmith. He was kind of the, the, the self-proclaimed leader of the union of silver idol makers, was freaking out because Paul and the gospel had turned so many people away from idolatry that it was impacting the income of these silversmiths. Not only that, but the culture of Ephesus, the economy of Ephesus was dependent on people coming and worshiping the goddess, of Art the goddess Artemis in that temple. And the gospel had such an impact in that culture that fewer people were coming to the temple. And so Demetrius stirred up the entire city saying, listen, if the gospel continues, it's going to radically change our lives. People will buy fewer idols. Fewer people will come to worship Artemis. And therefore, our entire economy is going to be threatened. And the entire city came together in this auditorium. And if it wasn't for a city official that disbanded it, 
Who knows what craziness would have occurred? And no one would have blamed the Apostle Paul for taking a break after that. But if you know the Apostle Paul, you know that moss doesn't grow in his life and nothing seems to stand in his way. Look at what happened. After the uproar had ceased, after all that drama and brouhaha in Ephesus, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. And when he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus, of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derby, Timothy and Tychicus of Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days. And there we stayed seven days. Keep jumping down, jump down to verse 13 and there's more travel. It says, but we going ahead to the ship set sail for Assos intending from there to take Paul on board. For so he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, he took him on board and came to uh, Mytilene. Sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Caius. And the next day, we crossed over to Samos. And the following day, we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have time, spent, or so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be to Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And so what we see after this whole brouhaha in Ephesus, Paul just keeps going. And as we go to our third missionary journey map that we've been following around, Paul has been in Ephesus, right? This was his base of operations for so long. After the brouhaha in Ephesus, Paul came all the way around down to Greece. There is a threat on his life. He decided to go all the way back through Macedonia and came all the way down here to Miletus so that he can end up down here, all the way down at the bottom of the map in Jerusalem by Pentecost. And again, if you know the Apostle Paul, nothing seems to slow him down. Nothing seems to stop him, even threats on his life. Paul just has this ability to push through challenge and difficulty. Days and days of travel. The first quality, first attribute, first characteristic we see about Paul is persistence. Persistence. Paul seemed to have this ability to just push through challenge. Look how he described it in his letter to the Corinthians. He said this, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. He continues, he said, I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And we read that and we think, oh my gosh, how did Paul do that? Like we can't even make it through kooky California and high gas prices without freaking out. How did Paul have persistence, be able to continue to push through with a heart for ministry in the midst of all that struggle? What does he have that we don't? What did he see that we miss? And we get a hint. In the following verses, look what he says next. 
It says, apart from such external things, there is this daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Let's just pause on that slide for a minute. It says that I have this concern. It describes a constant worry, an ongoing angst, a deep care. Paul's like, listen, you want to know what drives me, what gives me this ability to persevere through struggle? Man, I have this angst in my heart for the church. Like it consumes my day. It makes it hard to go to sleep at night because I'm always thinking about you. When I wake up in the middle of the night, I have trouble going back to sleep because I have this constant worry and angst about how you're doing in your faith. And when I wake up in the morning, even if it's early, I can't go back to sleep because my mind instantly floods with worrying about you, thinking about you, wanting to see what I can do to encourage the kingdom of God here on earth. Paul's like, you want to know what drives me, what gives me this ability to persevere. It's concern for all the churches And look how he ends it. He says, who is weak without me being weak? Man, I feel everything you feel. Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Paul said, you want to know what drives me? You want to know what gives me this ability to have this persistence to just push through struggle? It's my heart for God's work in your life. Man, I was reading that and thinking... I was thinking how badly I think the church in America needs persistence in it. I was thinking how quickly we are to quit. Man, it just seems like we leave too fast. I was reading a report recently, a reminder of a report recently, actually, an average church lifespan of a pastor in church, three to five years. Man, how can we have churches who persevere and have persistence when pastors won't even persevere and be persistent. The average church person stays at a church three to five years. Man, how can we develop relationships and persevere through life if we just move what I call the rotation of the saints from place to place to place? I want to ask you, where are you tempted to quit? Where are you ready to give up? Where are you contemplating pulling back? I want you to prayerfully consider not. You know, holidays is tough on marriages and families. I know there's a number of people here who contemplating walking away from your marriage. Preferably contemplate persistence. Grandparents. I know it's sometimes easy to just write off a grandkid or two because they never respond. They roll your eye, their eyes every time you bring up the Lord. And you're tempted to just draw back and pull away. I want to encourage you. Be persistent. My grandma and my grandpa for years were persistently going after my heart. And I gotta, I, I gotta tell you, I was not kind. I was not reverent. I was not respectful. And yet they continued to go after me and I'm so glad they did. 
Maybe some of you look at culture and you think it's, it's too broken, it's too lost. It's time to go, it's time to hang up your hat, it's time to leave. Some of you, I think, feel called to even be a voice of transformation within our culture, within California. And it's hard work and it's costly. You're contemplating stepping back. Maybe prayerfully consider persistence. It's one of the things that just drove Paul through. Man, nothing seemed to stop him. Where have you quit trying to make a difference? Quit praying to God to intervene. Quit serving out of frustration. Maybe it's time for American Christians to start applying one of the attributes of Paul. Persistence. There's another thing, though, that I think describes Paul, another attribute, another characteristic that I wonder if it might impact our lives and increase our fruitfulness to bring God glory. The first is persistence. The second is exhortation. Paul didn't just travel around city to city just so he could get beat up. That wasn't Paul's goal. He didn't travel around just to see the world. Look, at, let's go back to the beginning. Chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. Before Paul left Ephesus, he brought all the disciples, all the Christians together. And it said he exhorted them. A term exhort means to urge, implore, to talk up or admonish. Man, Paul was going to all of these regions to talk up, inspire, encourage, to speak truth into their lives. Look at verse 2. When he had gone through those districts, when he went through all of Macedonia and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. I mean, what Paul did, he focused around and he exhorted. He didn't just say nice things. He said true things. He said necessary things. He said things that would encourage and edify the body. I got to thinking, what kind of things would he say? So I looked up that word exhort in some of Paul's letters. Here's what I came up with. Look at Romans 12.1. This is what he, how he exhorted the church in Rome. He said, therefore, I urge you. I exhort you. I admonish you. I'm speaking truth to you. Therefore, I admonish you. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul says, I'm begging you. I'm exhorting you. I'm watching how you live. Don't live for yourself. Look what he said in Ephesians. He said this to the church in Ephesus, therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you, exhort you, admonish you. That's that word, implore you. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you've been called. Come on, guys, live a life worthy of the call of God. And look how he describes it, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit, the bond of peace. Paul traveled, exhorting, traveled all over the area, exhorting, speaking truth. Not just nice things, true things, necessary things. Encouraging, admonishing, directing the church. Please live in a manner worthy of your testimony. Look what he said to the Thessalonian church. 
Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But, big biblical but right there, we urge you, we admonish you, we exhort you, brethren, excel still more. Man, don't get content with just being a good church. Push on. Be better. Look how we did it. Look how we encouraged them. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Attend to your own business and work with your hands so that you will behave properly towards outsiders and not be in any need. Paul to the church of Thessalonians. Watch how you're living. Paul went to all these areas exhorting them, not just saying nice things, saying true things, necessary things, to lift up, to to encourage, admonish, to rile up the church, to be the people that God has called them to be and empowered them to be. And you might say, okay, Brian, that's the apostle Paul. Am I supposed to be exhorting people too? Well, according to the book of Hebrews, you are. Look at what that says. Take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you, any one of you, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. The Bible says, hey, be careful. How do we do it? But encourage one another. That term encourage, exhort. That term encourage rarely means just say nice things. It means say necessary things, say true things. Encourage, exhort, admonish one another day after day, as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Man, if we want to grow as a church that grows in the ability to be a reflection of Jesus, pure and pure each and every day, it takes more than the pastor. It takes each and every one of you to speak truth, to exhort, to admonish, to encourage. And if you're like me and my family, you're like, okay, I'm full up of people talking truth into my life. Brian, what does that look like? We have this image where we go to church and we just have a thousand people all speaking their opinions into our lives. And I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. Look how he describes it in the book of Ephesus or a book of Ephesians, he says this, speaking the truth in love, that term love, we talk about it all the time, is agape, it describes God's heart for us and our heart for one another. This love is patient, it's kind, it never fails. This is a love that's committed and communal. There's relationship, there's trust in the midst of this relationship. So Paul's saying, speaking the truth in these relationships, where to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Man, you, you want to grow in the image of Christ. You need to allow other people to speak truth into your life. You need to have relationships where they allow you to speak truth into theirs. And I just want to be honest with you. There's times in my life where I am so enraptured in my struggle, in my fear, in my worries, in my angst, in my pain, I don't see truth. And there's a number of people in this church who I'm grateful have taken it upon themselves to know me, to encourage me, to open my eyes, to exhort me and share truth with me. 
My question for you is, who's exhorting you? And who do you exhort? Who speaks truth into your life? And who allows you to speak truth into theirs? This is the heart of our vision as a church. We're saying we want 100% of people involved in groups. A small group, men's, women's, Bible study, a Sunday school class, whatever it is. We want you to be involved in relationships where you can get together with them. Or you can trust them. So they can exhort you, speak truth into you, help you understand how you can move in a life that's a pure reflection of God's glory each and every day. If we want to become a, have a ministry fruitful like Paul, I think we have to pay attention, have more persistence. Let's not quit as quickly. And we need to be committed to exhortation. But we have to do the work ahead of that. We have to have those relationships where we have trust and allow people to speak into our lives. And have trust in relationships where when they hear from us, they receive it in love. Persistence, exhortation. There's another attribute of Paul, though, I want to show you. We pick it up in verse 7. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. We have persistence, we have exhortation. Here's another attribute of Paul I think we need to apply in our lives. Verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. I just want to hit pause so you can thank me. Those of you who think I preach long, I am much shorter than the Apostle Paul. Keep going. Verse 8. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together, and there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. Let's hit pause again. Sinking into a deep sleep is in present tense, meaning that Luke is watching Eutychus, and he's fighting it the entire time. You know what I'm talking about? I know some of you do, because I watch the same thing <laughs> in your lives. Eyelids start getting heavy, right? You try opening your eyes wide shifting positions about the time guys your wives elbow you you think I don't see it I see everything <laughs> and all of a sudden your head droops a little bit you try looking like you're reading your bible with your hands down but I, I see it I see it maybe Brian will think I'm praying so you close your eyes and you're like this and all of a sudden, your head jerks up. I don't know what you're dreaming about, but everyone knows what just happened. <laughs> and that's what Luke, Luke is saying to this guy. And I got to tell you, I don't feel bad. Some of you fall asleep every Sunday. I'm okay with it. It happened to Paul. Happens to me. I was telling first service, there was a lady years ago. She sat around in this area and she was in church, bright and ready, but I'm telling you, every time I started to preach, head back, mouth agape, and she was gone. <laughs> and every Sunday, every Sunday, right as soon as I started to talk, head back, mouth open, and she's asleep the whole time. She came up to me one Sunday after church. She's like, Brian, I just got to tell you, it's the best sleep I ever get all week. <laughs> So I just, your voice is so soothing. And I know that's a lie because I don't think I have that soothing voice. But she's like, Brian, it's, I, I don't know what it is. You're, it's just so relaxing and peaceful here. The best sleep I get. 
is during your message. <laughs> Glad I can help. I get it. It's like entrapment. You're in comfortable seat. We turn the heaters on. You're in your comfy sweaters. It's been a long week. We just set you up for sleep in this room. But if you're a sleeper during sermons, let's finish the story because there's a warning in here. <laughs> Eutychus was sinking into a deep sleep, middle of verse 9, and as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. Right? And Luke, he's a doctor who's writing this, so he knows dead. He wasn't like asleep. He wasn't just like he knows dead. I, I, I don't always know dead. Right? There's medical professionals who can determine that. Uh, there's some people who look dead, they're not, and some people that don't look dead, and they are. Right? So, but Luke knows. Look what happened next, verse 10. But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, and he said, Do not be troubled, his life, for his life is in him. He revived him back to life. And then look at the impact. Look at the power of Paul. I mean, after that, that's a mood killer, right? They went back up and did it again. And he talked to them as long, he talked to them long while until daybreak. Like Paul kept preaching. Like I would have stopped. If someone fell asleep and died, I'd stop. Not Paul. Paul revives him back to life and gets back to his sermon. I mean, you look at Paul's life and he had power, right? He brought this young man back to life. Back in Ephesus, remember that? Even his hankies, he wiped his brow with when he walked or when he worked and people took it and healed their family members and friends. Man, there's an attribute of Paul's life where there was power. And I gotta tell you, I wish I had that. I was praying with a member of our church who's on hospice, I was praying with her. God numbers our days, but from earthly sight, she doesn't have many of them. And I hugged her. In a week I was prepping this, like, man, I wish that I could hug people like Paul did and restore life. This last Monday, we had an elder meeting, and we begin every elder meeting praying for you and needs in our church. We have a number of people who are fighting disease, illness, heartache, division in their homes. Man, I wish that God just gave me the ability to come in and just restore life and breathe hope through the power of God. I don't have that. All I can do is pray and tell this dear saint what my grandma always told me. I'll see you here, there, or in the air. Sometimes the best we can do is just walk through pain with people. And because I don't have the power of Paul, sometimes I feel like I have no power at all. How about you? Because we can't fix it miraculously, we feel that we have no impact on it at all. But that's a great thing about Scripture, is it reminds us that you are empowered. You do have power. You may not have the power to heal. But you have power. Look at what Paul wrote to the church of Colossae. 
wrote this in his letter in Colossians. He said, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He continues, he says, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power. Paul says, man, we pray that you will grow in the knowledge of God that you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for attaining all steadfastness and patience. Like you're empowered for this. Paul shared this, Ephesians. Tyler stole my thunder. This is not only my favorite prayer, but now it's Mackenzie's favorite prayer. Paul prayed this for the church in Ephesus one of the best churches of their day. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Paul says, man, I pray you would have power in your life to accomplish what God has for you. And look how he finished the prayer. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all that we ask or think according to the power that already works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. My question is, where do you need power? What situation in your life where you feel overwhelmed, incapable of persevering, Buried by the struggle. And maybe you feel powerless to knit your family back. My prayer for you is that you would have power to be the instrument of God in your home. Maybe you're living in kooky California and you're just biding your time until you can leave for the God-filled state of Texas, Virginia, Tennessee, Idaho. There's so many of them now, I'm losing track. Because you feel powerless to influence this kooky culture with the gospel. My prayer for you is that you'd be filled with power. That God has equipped you and empowered you to be a minister within your home and your community, your workplace. Where do you feel powerless? Where do you feel incapable? Where do you feel in over your head? I just want to encourage you. You have been given the very breath of God. And every one of you who claims Christ has been given a gift, spirit-empowered. You've been given power to edify the body and grow the church. My question for you is where do you need power? And where do you need to use your power for the edification of the church? See, that's something that I love about Paul. Paul just had this confidence that regardless of any situation he found himself, he was confident God would use him and do an amazing thing through him. Man, what if 800 people that call CVCC their home live life in a way where they had persistence. Where they spoke 
true things, real things, necessary things, not just nice things. But they spent time to build those relationships so they'd be received. What if 800 Christians lived their life as if the power of God was alive within them, capable of doing more than we can ask or even imagine? But there's one last attribute I want to remind you of. Look at verse 12. When everything's said and done, look at the result of Paul's ministry. They took away the boy alive, and they were greatly comforted. You know that term comforted, encouraged, fired up, ready to go, inspired to press on. That term is used so many places that Paul traveled. Corinth, Ephesus, Philippi, Thessalonica. The fruit of Paul's ministry was they left encouraged, exhorted, lifted up, fired up, ready to go. Not beaten, not bloodied, not judged, not condemned. Inspired for more. I guess my question for you is where do you need to be inspired? Where do you need to be encouraged? Comforted? I know some of you well enough to know the answer to that. But to be honest, there's just too many for me to know everything. And if there's a way I can encourage you in your life, in your walk, in your ministry, I'd certainly love to do that. You can come talk to me after church. If you don't want to wait for that, there's a comment card and seat back in front of you. You can use that and let me know. You can give it to the ushers on your way out. You can put it in the giving box at the end of the backside of church. And I'll reach out to you this week. But better yet, can I encourage, can I ask you, who is someone that you can encourage? Someone at church, you know, I, so often we know people are struggling, but we don't know what to say. So we say nothing. So I guess my question is, where do you need to be encouraged? Or second, perhaps there's someone in your life or circle of influence that you can be the encourager. Lift them up. Inspire them. Push them forward, whether it's in their relationships, their work, their walk with Jesus, their, their desire to grow in their faith. I finished this message more convinced than ever that maybe the reason why God used Paul because it was a model and an example of what God can do with one broken man in hopes that we would be inspired that if God can do all of this in Paul, why not something in your life and through your life as well? What's one attribute, one attribute of Paul's ministry that you can attribute to yours? One area you're ready to quit that you'll reconsider? Or one place you'll speak truth or allow people to speak truth in you? Maybe there's an area you feel powerless. That you can receive the power of God and move forward in confidence. Perhaps you just need encouragement. Or better yet, know someone who you can encourage. 
Will you apply one attribute? After all, I think that's why God leaves us here. It's why I love communion, because it's a reminder of not just what God has done in us, but what we've committed to allowing God to do through us. The first of every month, we have communion, and we celebrate it for a reason. We have the bread. It symbolizes the sacrifice of Jesus. The act of love, his devotion that was so intense, it caused him to leave the glories of heaven aside for a time to take on the form of his own creation to die on the cross so you and I could have communion and relationship with God. We have the cup, symbol of the new covenant, poured out, shed through the blood of Jesus Christ that reminds you that his forgiveness has washed you clean, has declared you righteous, he has justified your life, has paid the consequences of all your sin, but this cup is also a reminder of what God wants to continue to do through your life. See, salvation isn't just a forgiveness of sin, it's also a reflection of his glory through your life. This cup is a reminder he hasn't just justified your life, but he has empowered it for ministry of the future. I love how the Apostle Paul summarized it. He said this, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Man, the truth of the work of Christ should change you and mobilize you empower you and inspire you to be a reflection of who Jesus is throughout your life. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, again, we are grateful for your, for your word that not only directs us, it teaches us, it corrects us, it challenges us, but God, it also models You allow us to see the life of Paul. God, so that we might see what you can do in him in hopes that maybe, God, you can do that in us. So God, I pray for our church, for these people here. God, will you give us the ability to be persistent? Give us strength, God, that we can stand in spots that you have us for longer than we desire in confidence, God, that you can use us to do something within it. God, give us courage to speak truth into our friends' lives. God, protect us from being judgmental or critical. But give us relationships with people that we allow them to guide us God, give us relationships that they allow us to guide them. I pray for power for my friends. I pray you open our eyes. Allow us to see you as Paul did. Open our ears that we might hear your word and your spirit. God, open our heart. 
We might move through this life in confidence that you hold everything in the palm of your hand, that you have called us and empowered us to be an emissary of your glory, an ambassador of your gospel. God, fill us with power, God, that we would no longer be a weakened vessel of sin in this world. God, give us power that we would do more than just survive and wait for your return. God, give us power that we might be an influencer of this culture, an instrument of restoration of people's hearts to you. And God, a humble reflection of your power at work in our lives. God, lastly, God, help us to be people of encouragement. It's so much easier to be cynical, critical. God, open our eyes and allow us to see the good you're doing. Open our eyes, allow us to see the good that you're about to do. God, that we might encourage, lift up, inspire others to be involved in your kingdom. God, you've taught us to pray. Our Father is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. God, give us what we need. And we'll try hard to be content with what you've given. God, forgive us our debts, our sins, our failures, our rebellion, our greed. God, and we will forgive those who have wronged us. God, lead us not into temptation. God, deliver us from evil. Empower us to walk away. God, guide us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Just a moment, the ushers and deacons will dismiss you for communion. If you're a child of God, if you've committed your life to him, if you've received his gift of salvation, you're welcome. Partake. Take a piece of bread and a cup. Take it back to your seat. Then in a moment, we'll take communion together as a family.